0: Good morning everyone. Thanks for being with us um, as we talk about the uh, Pizza Bomber case, which today marks the 16th anniversary of the start of that case, which um, of course began with the uh, the explosion of the bomb that was on Brian Wills' neck as he tried to rob the uh, PNC Bank in Summit Township. So we're here this morning with Jerry Clark, retired FBI special agent who was the lead investigator on the case. I know many of you... Um, I've heard Jerry speak before and, and know of uh, his involvement in the case. So, Jerry, thank you for being here this thank morning. Thank you very much. And um, So, um, and we hope to get a lot of questions on this. We always do get a lot of questions, so please um, submit them and we'll do our best. So, Jerry, 16 years um, uh-huh. to the day when this event happened. Um, can you just reflect on that for us a little bit? It's been a long time and it doesn't mm-hmm. seem that long either.
1: You're you're right, Ed. It, it it's it's sort of strange because in a way it seems like it was just yesterday, but yet it's 16 years, and I think all the years that have gone by. And again, certainly every time I talk about this case, I have to mention that you know people died in a horrific you uh, know way, uh, uh, certainly on on film, uh, and so I never forget the victims involved in this case as we walk through and talk about it, even to this day. But yeah, 16 years later, here we are. So,
0: um, Jerry, can you just walk us through what you were doing that day? Um, we And Jerry and I covered a lot of this in the book we wrote on the case, Pizza Bomber. Um, but if you could just, because yeah. certainly no one was expecting this on that day. So if you could just tell no. us what you were, you were kind of looking forward to the Labor Day weekend. Yeah. Um, and... Um, some other events that you had planned with your family and then this happened so you can just sure yeah what you were doing it leading was up to this.
1: it was really unbelievable because you never do plan uh, to think that something like this could ever happen but uh we had a lot of plans it was labor Day, the thursday before a labor day weekend uh just you know regular day at the fbi where you're doing busy work you know either interviewing or or writing reports or you know uh things in the office and then the phone call came in and It sounded very different you know automatically rushed up uh to peach street and and i think we mentioned in the book i actually pulled directly onto the scene which was way too close uh, to where mr wells was already apprehended by the state police so uh it was just one of those days that you just thought oh my gosh this can't be happening and as it progressed it, it it got worse as we went
0: Jerry, you mentioned the uh, the phone call that you received about it was a little different, or the report, the initial mm-hmm. report, was a little different. What what made you realize that this was not your ordinary bank robber bank robbery or a, a hoax bank robbery?
1: Yeah, you know, we we have received over the course of my time, you know, in the hundreds of bank robberies, you know, banks that are being robbed with the use of some sort of device or hoax device. This one just, I don't know, the, the way they were describing it, it sounded like, well, okay, this is a little different than most. Um, I think I'd mentioned before, binocular case with an antenna one time or flares taped together when you arrive on scene. But this one just sounded different in, in how they were discussing it. So I knew right away, all right, we, we, we definitely need to be focused and paying attention to what we're doing here.
0: When you arrived on the scene, you had to back up a little bit, right? Right. It was
1: way too close. Way too
0: close. Yes. But what was it like when you got there? I mean, this was all unfolding. Brian Wells was sitting
1: cross-legged in
0: the parking lot of the eyeglass world. I mean, what was it like? Right.
1: Was it kind of surreal for you then? It was because, again, you're thinking, hoping for the best, you know, that it was a a hoax device, that nobody would get injured and and that it would get resolved. And, and he'd stand up, we'd take it off, and it's over. And while the bomb squad was literally gearing up in the parking lot, uh, you know, 3.18 p.m., the device went off. So it was immediate chaos because, you know, you just never really have something like that happen. And people running from place to place and just trying to gather everybody's wits about them on what do we do first and what do we need to do to get this thing started.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it's interesting. I mean, 16 years is a long time ago. And of course, cell phones have grown in, in terms of sophistication and usage so much since yeah. then. But at the time, there was really no, I mean, no cell phones, no one taking video. I mean, other than the TV stations. But that must, when you think back, if you, if you kind of imagine that type of crime happening at this moment with all the cell phones, it would really be, really be a little different in terms of I, what people capture and maybe even the evidence that you had.
1: No doubt. Uh, if this would ha- happen now, you would have had numerous different uh, shots of the event. Uh, as it was, we only had what, what the TV uh, had captured but and some of the businesses around the area, but today this would have been a totally different uh, case and investigation on how they work it. I think, so the technology has advanced uh, that significantly.
0: Because in terms of how the the bank robbery was reported, a motorist or a customer on his cell phone mm-hmm. called in the bank robbery. Right. But um, in terms of today, you'd have video and all kinds uh, of
1: things going on. No doubt, it would have been much different. You even saw the advances at the Boston bombing at the marathon bombing and the advances and how they immediately had photographs of the two brothers uh that they were able to put out and advance the investigation just in those amount of years so that the full uh 16 years made a huge difference
0: and then in terms of what has happened in in the past year with this case i mean the big news was that ken barnes died right in june um and he had been ill. Now, Ken Barnes was the uh, Marjorie Deal Armstrong's co-conspirator, one of many co-conspirators in this case, but Ken Barnes and Marjorie Deal Armstrong were the only people who uh, were prosecuted, and Ken Barnes pleaded guilty and testified against Marjorie Deal Armstrong, and he died while serving a, a prison sentence of about 22 and a half years, and a federal facility in North Carolina. And he had been quite ill. Mm-hmm. He had been quite ill all along. He was ill when he went into prison. So it was not much of a surprise that he would die in prison. But even still, um, that means that of those who were prosecuted, Marjorie Neal Armstrong and Ken Barnes, they're, they're both dead.
1: Yeah. You know, I always said, Ed, the the real fascination of this case was the characters that were involved and the, the individual uh personalities and psychology that was involved in all of them and the fact that they all found each other to do this like-minded evil uh, to this day you know I I went into my classroom today at Gannon University who's one of our sponsors I guess and I, I, I walked into the room and you know I have a huge class for investigative concepts and I thought oh my god 16 years ago you know I was involved in something that's so unique and now I, I share that with them and work through uh, how I did what I did through that course, and it's, it's, it's really amazing to me um, just how far we've come. But the personalities, and, and, and students have asked me that. What makes this case so unique? And I think, number one, that it was captured on film, and then number two, the fact that these people found each other to do something that had never happened before, Makes it still to this day one of the strangest criminal cases in history.
2: We're getting a lot of comments, just people saying they remember the day, and they always think of Brian Wells passing Peachtree Eyeglass World. Um, somebody said, "I'm so sorry that you had to see that and go through that. Thank you for your service," which is oh. a nice compliment. But also, thank uh, you. You know, do you still have like thoughts about that day that kind of like haunt you, or?
1: I'm sure every investigator. And a lot of times, because I'm sort of the face uh, of the case, but there were so many investigators from all the agencies, ATF and PSP and Erie Police Department, the bomb squad and the DA's office and the US attorneys. Everyone has this case that affected them in some way because you you witness something that you couldn't believe if you were on scene. And then the fact that you're standing there going, who could do this to another human being, you know? Involved, not involved, it didn't even matter. The fact that somebody could do that to somebody uh, still to this day haunts me a little bit. But the fact that we persisted as an investigative team, not just Jerry Clark, but everybody who worked so hard on this case to get to a resolution uh, is still one of the most proud moments, besides the birth of my kids, that I have. And it—it—it it, it, it just um, I'll, I'll, I'll be grateful to everyone who had input in this case.
0: Well, it's fascinating, Jerry, that when, we have, when we're have out talking about this, when we have book signings, how many people come up to us and say, this is what I was doing on oh, that day, or I was stuck in yeah. traffic on Peachtree, or I was stuck in that Walmart, I couldn't get out of there, and I called my spouse and said, what's going on? And they said, oh, there was the, there's a bombing. It's almost like when, when you hear people say they remember exactly where they were when they heard that John F. Kennedy was assassinated, yes. or... When when Neil Armstrong walked on the moon or 9/11, I mean, I'm certainly we all remember nationally where we were when we heard about 9/11 that day. But certainly in Erie, there's it seems to be ingrained in the collective memory of where people were that day when it happened. That's how that's how big an event it is on the kind of on the community psyche.
1: No doubt, this had a huge impact on Erie in general, not just the investigators, but like you said, everyone knows where they were that day and we do have people come up to us all the time and have new input i still have people talking about the case right say did you know this or did you and and i'll say oh my god all these years later right, we're still right. talking and sometimes you
0: say it would have been nice to have known that well
1: <laughs> yeah something 16 years ago i think it didn't add to the fact that it changed anything right, right. but it added to the fact that it would have helped right solidify what we had right. so i definitely would have liked that yeah that's kind of funny I think. yeah
0: one woman said to me, "Well, I knew Bill Rossing, another big co-conspirator in the case, and he had talked about this before." And I'm thinking, right. "Oh my gosh, why
1: hadn't you?" Oh my gosh! It? So
0: sometimes you wonder, you know, if it's kind of a, um, you know, people are not manufacturing but thinking, well, "I wonder if he said this or not." But some people say, "Well, I heard this or that," and they <laughs> right. just never came forward, which is kind of funny.
1: So it really is. But I'm a, I'm a, I'm a huge eerie guy. You know, I was born and raised in Erie. I love Erie. I, I requested the FBI send me home to Erie. Uh, and, and when I got here, I, I just was so proud to work in Erie and be in Erie. And a lot of people say, well, you know, this Erie has this sort of shadow because of this case. And I'm saying, no, this case could have happened anywhere. Mm-hmm. And the fact that we solved this case in Erie with the law enforcement that we have in Erie, I think is proud for us you know somewhere else it might have gone on Um but we weren't gonna let that happen certainly the good hard-working investigators here said let's get this done and that's what we did
0: but you I mean you said earlier this morning about the characters how you're always fascinated by the by the characters the mm-hmm. uh, fractured intellectuals the kind <laughs> of um, um Narcissism and the and the misfit aspect to it all, but I mean, I hear more people say that they just what really struck them was that these this group of misfits, pretty diabolical misfits, found themselves in Erie. So it kind of reveals the underbelly of the of the comu- community in a in a dark way, but also kind of a in a black humor way because these people were they were uh, certainly sinister, but also kind of uh, kind of crazy.
1: Yeah, the fact that they found each other, and then, again, with like-minded bad intention, uh, was a disaster for that day.
2: Sixteen years later, do you think there is still somebody out there who has information on this case that they should
1: bring to you? You know, and, and I, again, I, I hate to keep going harking back to teaching, but it's, it's because of that now that I, I sort of get out all the all my thoughts on this. I tell these students, unless you were the person that did this crime, a specific crime, it could be any crime, Right. you're the only one that knows what happened. And so uh, a lot of times you think you know everything because of the evidence that you've put together. You know a good portion of what happened, but to say you know everything about what happened? No. Do I think we have the right people? Yes. I'm fully convinced of that. Do I think I know everything? No. So to answer your question, I think there are things out there that if people brought it forward to this day and said, hey, did you know this? Maybe not, but I don't think it changed the aspect of who was involved in what they did.
0: Right, right. Certainly, um, we get that a lot, question a lot at the Times, and I think you, you capture it well that the, the people who were indicted and linked to the case, we're definitely in on it. But mm-hmm. in terms of all the ins and outs, how they came up with the plan, their influences, mm-hmm. um, there's a lot, There's a, it's still a big mystery in many ways. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, me trying to, you know, working on the story, trying to talk to people who are connected to Ken Barnes and others who refuse to talk. I mean, I know there's certainly people out there who have mm-hmm. more of an idea of what went on that day. Not that, it, like you said, it would change, Right. Result in terms of the prosecution, but it would be fascinating to know some of the details in terms of, uh, especially who, who came up with the plan. I mean, we believe certainly that Rossing was kind of the architect of it, and Marjorie Neil Armstrong gave him the impetus to put it in the motion. That's right. But just to know um, the conversations that transpired between them and what they were oh. thinking would be really,
1: really something to, uh, something. To, learn about and hear about would be really really interesting it sure would um just their conversations like you said um some of the real intricate details like some vehicles that were used that i never found Oh yeah. um you know what was to happen at that last site where someone had gotten to that site before we did so there's there's still some mystery that shrouds it all but the facts of who like i said was really involved and their roles, I think, are fairly clear.
0: Right. But in terms of bringing it to prosecution, you didn't necessarily
1: need to know every detail just enough. and You had a lot to uh, bring the case to trial. Yes. And, you know, Marshall Pichinini, a U.S. attorney who's now Judge Piccinini, uh congratulations, um, he was very instrumental in making sure that the evidence was there and fully complete. And again, investigators like to always think, "Hey, we have enough. This is our evidence. Let's let's go to trial." But the prosecutors are who bring the case to trial, and he was very cautious and very deliberate in making sure that we had beyond reasonable doubt evidence. And that's what the burden is, and that's what the burden should be, because you don't want innocent people ever in jail. And that's what we achieved.
2: Another question that I feel as though you get a lot: Are you certain of the level of Brian Wall's involvement?
1: Yeah, now that's going to come up uh, on a regular basis. And again, I, I, I talk about this in class, where you are the investigator and your job is to find the truth. The truth you put together by evidence you collect. And you bring evidence to the prosecutor. The prosecutor takes the case to, to the judge and to the, to the jury. Our evidence clearly indicates that Brian Wells was involved because of his knowledge of the people, that he knew the people, and that they tricked him. They duped him. They they told him it wasn't real, and it was. The mom. Yes. And he was a very nice, gullible guy who believed what he was being told and was trying to do the right thing for what he was told to do. But... At the same time, they had no intention for him ever to live through this event. And that's the most, I think, maniacal part for me.
0: So in terms of his involvement, the evidence shown was that he was a willing participant in the bank robbery, but certainly not a willing participant in having a live bomb locked to his neck.
1: Never. And that's why, you know, the pre-planning meeting the day before, he attended. Uh, so we know that he attended the pre-planning meeting. We know that he uh, told investigators a different story once we had contact with him that day on who put that on him. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So there were indications that he was trying to stick with the plan that they had given him, but he had no intention and no knowledge of knowing that that device was ever active or, or live.
0: Do you think, Jerry, that in terms of the scavenger hunt that he was supposed to go on, with the bomb locked around his neck. Do you think they explained that to him at all before that day, like at the planning meeting, or or was it... Certainly the evidence from Barnes um, was that they, the day before they put mm-hmm. the bomb on him, or a mock-up on the bomb. But Was there ever any evidence that on that pre-planning day they said, oh, by the way, you're going to have to drive to all these other spots, or did they spring that on him that day, the day uh, of the
1: robbery. I personally think he had to know, and here's why. A- at least that he was going to make some stops, and I'm sure he had to read, because his fingerprints, there were 18 fingerprints on the notes that were Brian Wells, as indicating that he was reading the notes. I don't know that he knew exactly maybe the locations, but that he was going to go do a couple stops, because otherwise he would have never been able to read all that material that they had given him in time to go do the stops and he wasn't at any one stop very long before he moved on to the next one until law enforcement pulled him over so to answer your question i think he knew some of the things but he didn't know in detail maybe uh the exact locations
0: so in terms of him wearing the bomb even in the in the planning meeting it was still the strategy that hey if you're caught you can say i'm a hostage this is the bomb. And then if someone, then I guess they would have told him it's fake. So if someone says, well, it's fake, what are you talking about? You could say, well, I had no idea it was fake. But certainly on that day, it was very real. And, and he, he didn't want to wear the real bomb, but they forced it on, and, on him, and then he went on his
1: way. Yeah, and that's to Mr. Wells's credit. The day he shows up, he sees the device for the first time and said, that looks too real. I don't want to do that. And this is according to at least two of the co-conspirators who independently told us that story, that he didn't want to do it, and they forced him to do it and put it around his neck. That that sort of mitigates, in my mind, what he was there for. But what aggravates, again, for him is that once he stopped, he stuck with the story. Now, there could be several reasons out of fear that he stuck with the story, but he did and told us that it was you know, a group of people that put this on him. He could have said it's Marjorie, Bill, you know,
0: right away. and
1: Ken, and it would have been over. Right, it would that have been over, it right, it would have been... But that's not what happened, unfortunately.
0: Right, right, And then in terms of his involvement, and this this came up a little bit in Evil Genius, the, the, the docu-series that came out um, in May of 2018 on this, but there was some debate as to why the, the government didn't pursue the death penalty. Well, it was mm-hmm. because of... Ryan Wells' involvement, because certainly the U.S. attorney at the time, Mary Beth Cannon, didn't believe that, that there would be enough evidence to show that, well, well, because he was involved, he wouldn't be, I guess you would call it a, a traditional victim or a classic victim, right. so therefore they, they felt uncomfortable with pursuing the death penalty.
1: That's that right, view. and because he was a non-indicted co-conspirator, right, right, she, exactly. she decided to... To handle it that way right
2: 16 years later and we still have a feeling that we still might not be sure of everyone's involvement in this will there ever be a time that you will step back and kind of wipe your hands clean of this and say it's done there's no more
1: you know i i i I think that's a good question and i think i've reached that point Mm -hmm. i really feel like i'm there Uh, And any investigator, Jason Wick, Dave Gluth, Jim Brown, State Police, whoever it is that worked on this case as an investigator, I think we all feel like if there's any question out in the community about what happened, that's more related to them than the investigators. The investigators don't really have any question of who was involved and that we were correct. Again, do we know every detail about that? No. But do we know every person that we felt was involved was charged, we feel comfortable. Uh,
2: what would you could have done differently? If, what would you have done differently if you could have?
1: No, that's a great question too, because if you get the chance to ever have 2020 vision and look back at something and say, "Hey, what could we have done better?" I think the one thing we really missed in this case was Robert Panetti. And Robert Panetti was the second pizza delivery driver that died three days after Brian Wells uh, due to an overdose, and we had the opportunity to interview him, but decided to interview him at a later time in more detail. We should have never let that happen. Another agent, not you. Yeah, no. And unfortunately, because this case was so big, we had other people mm-hmm. doing things, but. That was a missed opportunity in my mind, because um, he went uh, to his grave knowing things that would have been helpful for us, too. So there are some regrets. And he
0: was of the personality that he probably would have cracked fairly quickly.
1: I was 100% convinced that he might have had some insight that he would have shared that would have ended this thing much earlier.
0: Right, and it turns out that he knew quite a bit about it
1: from what the other other
0: co-conspirators said.
1: And they wanted him dead. Right. and that's a lot of the reason why and it'll never be charged but a lot of the reason why I think mr Panetti um, is now deceased
0: is because that he that somehow they arranged for his for his death in terms of um, you know he the official cause of death was an overdose right but certainly they made sure that um, the conspirators made sure that he had the uh, drugs in his hand that led to the overdose so
1: that would lead to death right, that's right
0: right in terms of jerry you just mentioned that there were quite a few agents involved in this case yeah um fbi agents atf state police Uri police but this was a big deal in the fbi as well this was major case number 203 203 which right. is up there with um you know some of the fbi's big cases and then did you get on the phone with robert muller or at the time or did your supervisor
1: he was being uh, briefed mm-hmm. on a daily basis. At the end of the uh, in completion or conclusion of the convictions, I did receive a call from the director's office. So I was, you know, at the time very impressed with that, and uh, I still am to this day, actually. But um, saying congratulations and and your persistence was noted, you know. A lot of people say, "Oh my gosh, you went from 2003 to 2010. That's a long time for investigation." But there were several things that happened in competency for Marjorie Deal, and trial being delayed, and so there was a lot of things that happened that slowed us down. Plus, you knew where the uh, you certainly knew where the suspects were. I mean, she was in prison and he was in prison, and they weren't going anywhere, so we had time on our side. Right.
2: Somebody was asking about how, kind of describe your interaction with Marjorie Deal Armstrong and uh, oh. how that how
1: you interacted with her, like your investigation. Yeah. Uh, Again, I cannot tell you how and and this is going to sound so bizarre to people, Ed, how fortunate, though, that I consider myself as an investigator to ever have interviewed Marjorie Deal Armstrong. I mean, you may go a whole career and never speak to anybody as unique and individualized as her. So, we had some yelling sessions. We had some quiet time we shared pretzel rods in the back of the uh, state police cruiser we had some unique interactions but she was something that I'll always consider uh one of the most fortunate things an investigator could ever have in a career do
2: you still are are you still in touch with Jessica Hoopsick at all
1: no I have not talked to Jessica I ran into her one time uh which is an interesting thing, uh, years after I retired, and we had a conversation, and um, but I have not seen her now in probably a few years.
2: It's been a year since Evil Genius was released. Can you give us your overall thoughts on the documentary? Series?
1: Yeah, we hear a lot about Evil Genius. And I'll never forget the producers of Evil Genius said, you know what, Evil Genius uh, is going to change your life. And I looked at her and I said, what the heck are you talking about? That didn't change my life. But it had a real unique effect because this brought out to so many people, the people that have seen that show. Uh, and, and, but Evil Genius had a slant and they wanted their slant to be known. And that's okay. It's entertainment. I get that. But it wasn't quite accurate. Uh, it did a good job of portraying some of the background of the case and the development of the case, but how they ended the show, I thought trying to show some mystery or drama, was not quite as accurate as I would have liked.
0: So, um, 16 years, and then of course Ken Barnes is dead. Marjorie New Armstrong is dead. Um, I mean Floyd Stockton is really the only other person out there, right. and no one's really heard from him. No. So he was a he was a, a involved in this as well, but got a immunity deal. So that's probably a big mystery that people ask me a lot about. What do you think he knows? And I believe he probably knows quite a bit, but has been told to keep his mouth shut. Yeah. Um, because he couldn't get he couldn't get in trouble if he reveals stuff that he did knew stuff that he did not reveal to the investigators before. Right. So that's always been an interesting aspect of the case too.
1: Stockton will always be. A mystery to the public right. and to the investigators, in a way that um, I think will live on for a while.
0: And then what was what was really interesting about him is that he was lined up to testify, and then he had a heart condition or a stroke or whatever, and he was hospitalized. And then he still convicted Marjorie Dill Armstrong without without his
1: testimony. We didn't even have him. And right. if people thought our case was strong, obviously beyond a reasonable doubt, for Marjorie to a jury. Uh, we, we left out a full co-conspirator in, in Stockton who could have even solidified that more.
2: I think a lot of people also love to get inside this investigation. What were some skills that you had to use or what were some tactics you had to use with some of these characters um, mm-hmm. in this investigation?
1: I think that's one of the best questions ever, and here's why. I think if you don't have a background in psychology as an a investigator, I always talk about that, that you're missing out a little bit on being a full-fledged, well-rounded investigator. Because we had talked about this before. Unless you're at the scene and committed the crime, you're depending on two things. Forensic evidence or somebody telling you about it. And if you can't interview and get people to tell you some of the most vile things they've ever done in their life, you're going to miss out on parts of... I think what the, the, the thing I pride myself the most in is having that master's degree in forensic psychology and being able to learn why people do things, not necessarily what they do, helped me so much in this, and we used it a lot in the interviews and interrogations.
0: Because in this case, there wasn't a smoking gun, there wasn't DNA, um, it was was solved largely by cracking through the person I mean, breaking down yes. the Ken Barnes and Marjorie Deal Armstrong to tell them to have them tell you what they knew about the case.
1: Yes. And there were times where those interviews got a little testy because they knew we were challenging and touching on a nerve. So very interesting.
0: Well, thank you for being here with us this morning. We appreciate you uh tuning in and then also all our other facebook live um, sessions that we have each week jerry thank you for being thank here thank you ed. i really it appreciate always, it always an interesting okay. case and sarah thank you for having us
1: thank you sarah thank you ed